One of the most fascinating parts is that part of history is just how close Rome came to lose to Carthage. One of the keys to Carthage's success was that they figured out how to mass-produce their Phoenician ships. This led them to churn ships quicker than any other entity at the time, which led them to basically dominate the Mediterranean. In contrast, the Romans were, at the time, mainly a backwater, and their navy capabilities nowhere near that of Carthage's. And they were on the brink of being completely obliterated. But just as Carthage's success came from one of the early... What? (laughs) What? But just as Carthage's success came from one of the earliest forms of industrial production, Rome's success came from the one of the earliest forms of industrial industrial espionage. The trick to the Carthaginian shipbuilding was that it was a form of assembly by numbers, where they had figured out to replicate the same piece over and over, give it a number, and having the final shipyard simply assemble the same ship over and over following the numbers in the plan. Somehow the Romans captured one ship, they figured out what the numbers in each distinct piece of wood meant, found some plans, and they were able to decipher the design. Almost every Roman ship afterwards was a direct replica of the Phoenician ship. And welcome back to Zero Credits The Frightened Times, the show where we talk about things that go bump in the night. My name's Haunted Henry. And my name's Frightened John. And together we're Haunted Henry and Frightened John, coming at you to discuss the cultural happenings of the Zeitgeist. I I think, uh, you know, a lot could be said about uh, the the ancient Carthaginians' ability to uh, mass-produce their own ships. But all I gotta say is, too nice, Tunis, Tunisia, too nice. So if you can't tell, John's not here again. Um, yeah, I just let that silence be there because I like if he were here, he would make like a really long pun about too nice Tunisia and we would unpack that. But he's just he's just not here again. You know, it's it's Tunis, too nice Tunisia. And like I can, I can, I can almost like I can hear him. He, he could like he would be correcting me about the very specific historical pun, and he would be like, "It's Tunis, Tunis, Tunisia." Like I, like I can hear it. It's almost like he's here with us in spirit because he is. I um I wanted to make a joke about <laughs> Greece, but we were in fact talking about Rome, a schoolboy's error. One might say, confusing Greece and Rome. They're completely different places, John. Very different. One copied the other. But who copied... Wait, they're both dead. So I guess whichever I mean, Greece, one every, everyone, everyone, Everyone copied. Everyone mm. copied Greece. Right. So that's welcome. actually a, that's a, that's a bad standpoint. Not everyone copied Greece. A lot of American school systems kind of teach you that Greece was like the birthplace of culture and civilization. It wasn't. It was just one of the places where it happened. What a frightening fact. <laughs> it's, it's very frightening. Xenophobia and nationalism, very frightening. Ooh, I would almost venture to call it spooky if we were not avoiding that word entirely. I would be more scared of a skeleton if that skeleton was xenophobic. I don't like skeletons that are anti-skin. 
Oh yeah, they're very, they're very anti-skin. Well, like they're outspoken about skin havers. I just, I don't like them. Yeah, I'm not, I'm really genuinely trying to come up with a pun, but it's surprisingly difficult. It's very hard. Now, folks at home, uh, I have just been pretending to talk to John. He's not actually here tonight. Uh, so if you can just fill in the gaps yourself, that would be great. If like, if we can just imagine what John would be saying during these conversations, I think that would be a pretty neat exercise. Yeah, like a like a John Madlib, if you will. Like you fill it in with things I might say, such as I I'm sca- I'm scared of the dark. <laughs> yeah, that would be great if if we can. We'll all just pretend, and it'll be great. We're gonna get through this. I, I he's gonna get back on the podcast one day. I I swear. We're not fighting. No, we're fighting. Actually, we we are fighting, battling. That's right. Actually, that's right, John. We're not fighting, and we're we're perfectly all right with with who we are and our life choices. <laughs> I uh, received a scathing, a number, a panoply of, of scathing messages about my inability to attend the podcast last week, despite being deathly ill. They were ad hominem attacks, attacks to my person. <laughs> They were strange straw man arguments thrown in there. Every, every rhetorical device was used to excoriate, defame, belittle, and humiliate me over the course of eight days. That's, that means it's still going. Because that's one day longer than a week. So it was it's going weird in- because it started before I even told you <laughs> that I couldn't be on the podcast. Well, that is, wow, what a coincidence that you were sick for that. I was sick that whole time and I was being belittled and excoriated. I was being harangued and tongue-lashed nonstop every hour of the day. Well, John, it's time to make it up to you. As they say, the darkest comes before the dawn, and boy, what a dawn I have for you. I can't imagine a dawn much better than my delicious beverage that I bought for myself to make myself feel better. Are you drinking like a hot toddy? (laughs) No, I actually did drink hot toddies. Listen, reject modernity, embrace tradition. People try to tell you hot toddies don't do anything. Lemon with honey and whiskey, not effective. In my opinion, extremely effective. I don't know what the whiskey does, but it's medicine. I, it has nothing to do with the honey? <laughs> no, nor the lemon. I'm just, As much in the same way that nicotine is now getting a health optimization style glow up, I would like to do the same thing for brown liquor as medicine. All right. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, over the weekend, I drank my fair share of brown liquor. And I, I, I don't know, each morning I woke up feeling a little worse than the previous. Uh, I feel better every time I drink delicious Suntory Whiskey Toki. What? It's a Japanese whiskey. Actually, pretty oh, cheap okay. Japanese whiskey. It's pretty cool. It's very tasty. I'm boring. I'm drinking. I'm drinking my last pecan, Abita beer. I got nothing to say about it. It's here. I mean, pecan beer. We we've had the pecan beer conversation yeah, at least once a year. I hear. I heard you got a gift for me, John. I want to take you on a little trip down memory lane, 
and revisit a segment we did, I believe, in one of the very first Frightened Times. Oh, wow. I... Memory Lane is actually my most terrifying street because I have past aversion. That's right. And normally I wouldn't be able to remember this because the Frightened Times, of course, obliviates and obscures. But uh, something, something, when we went through all those portals, something, something, I remembered this thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We, we talked about that. If you guys, uh, if anyone listening to this isn't aware, you need to go back to one of the lore episodes. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can consult the skip list, but I think it was the third lore episode of the fr- of the third supplemental lore episode of the Frightened Times for last oh, year. Wow. We remember now, but only during the Frightened Times do we remember. Exactly. And what I remember, John, we were exchanging stories of our favorite creepy, creepy and origin things. My brain no work good no more. We were exchanging stories, our favorite creepy stories. And you brought up a, an incident that you said was your favorite creepy story. Do you remember what this was? Were we talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident? Absolutely, John. Because Are you fucking kidding me? I love the Dyatlov Pass incident. My gift to you is a, is a news story from earlier two years ago. <laughs> I'm sorry, but two years ago is breaking news for the Dyatlov Pass incident. John, they, I, I, I don't know how this has not made bigger news because uh, they solved it. Are you? F- I listen, I'm a big Dyatlov Pass incident head, as everyone listening to this knows. Uh, I cannot believe that I was not made aware of this. Th- this is insane to me. When I saw this, I did a spit take, a double take, all the takes you could, I could, I uh, took from the rich. To give to the poor. I did every take you can do. I did multiple takes. You took five. I took five gum. <laughs> is that, is, <laughs> yeah, not, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they solved it, John. They solved it in the most interesting way I think you could you could potentially solve an unsolved mystery. Um, they did it by using animation. I'm sorry, what? They used it. They used animation to solve the Davlov pass. I can't. Davlov pass incident. You you mean to tell me they used anime to solve this? No, animation, not anime. Oh, oh, it's I Western see, I see. based. Are you familiar with a little company or corporation hereby known as the Disney Corporation? I think I've heard of them in passing. Are you familiar with one of their little uh, moving picture stories known as Frozen? <laughs> yes, I am. I am pretty familiar with Frozen. Uh, less so Frozen 2. The song was better but harder to sing, so the movie flopped. Oh, that's what it was. I mean, it really um, was. So are you aware that for no reason other than to make the movie... The animators of Frozen have made one of the most realistic and physically accurate snow generators on the planet. I am so into this story already. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Diav Love, wow, I just really can't speak. For those of you who are unfamiliar of the Diatlov Pass incident, uh, here's a quick rundown. 
1959 in in Russia's Ural Mountains, uh, nine Russian hikers, very experienced, set out on a 200-mile trek and met their untimely end through, as of this moment, unknown reasons. Uh, Mm -hmm. Their camp was found torn into sunders. Things were buried, equipment all over the place, and most of the bodies uh, were unclothed and disco- discolored upon being found. And and strewn in every direction, like they were running away from something. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and a, a lot of people were like, oh, well, uh, clearly there's so many simple reasons that, that this could have happened. A nuclear bear. Yeah, classic, classic reason. Uh, some type of Wendigo kind of thing, calling out the people in the night and making them take off their clothes. <laughs> As Wendigos do. And then you had your people who were like, well, it was cold, so maybe they got, like, you know, paradoxical undressing due to hypothermia. Maybe they slashed through the tents because they thought that it was, you know, cooler out there, stuff like that. Um And amongst all of these people, there were a proponent of people who said it was a simple avalanche. Mm -hmm. The only problem being uh, there was there was no record. There was no snowfall around the time of the incident that would cause like a loose snow packed to create an avalanche. Yeah, and from my understanding, like, forensically, it, it didn't make sense that, like, an avalanche of any significant size would have occurred there for reasons avalanche scientists know, I guess. Right. Uh, so, according to ne- National Geographic, uh, there was no snowfall on the night of February 1st that could have increased the weight of the snow burden on the slope and triggered a collapse. Mm-hmm. So, everyone sort of ruled out the avalanche. Also, um, most of the blunt force trauma-like injuries on the hikers and some of the soft tissue damage were atypical of those caused by avalanches whose victims usually asphyxiate. Mm -hmm. There were bruises on the body, and uh, that's bad. Yeah, Uh, almost as if they were beaten to death by a Wendigo. Exactly. Uh, But thanks to the animation code of Disney's Frozen, the the avalanche theory has gained more ground uh, in in a weird way. Because what what this animation code has allowed researchers to do is create simulations. Mm -hmm. And... This is a bad article. I have I, there's a better article somewhere. Um, so what, I'm I'm going from memory here now, but uh, what they showed was it wasn't like a large avalanche. It was a mini avalanche that wiped out the camp. One caused by them digging into part of a slope in order to make their camp. Oh, right. I'm. But- like a like a micro avalanche. A micro avalanche. Yes. Uh, let's see if I can find a better article here. Okay. So using the simulations, they solved the problem of the slope angle, the delay in creating the uh, the avalanche. Uh, they have an interesting theory about the traumatic injuries often cited by cri- critics of the avalanche theory. 
uh, but there are still other mysteries. It, it's and it's very funny how they they solved the uh, the traumatic injuries because they just worked with General Motors to work. Apparently, in the 1970s, General Motors conducted crash tests on cadavers. <laughs> I mean, if it's science, it's science, baby. And uh, the researchers used that data in conjunction with what they're calling a slab avalanche, saying that the force and impact of a slab avalanche could cause similar traumatic injuries. Yeah, because a, a slab avalanche is when, like, packed snow slides right. down in, like, big, hard sheets. So their comp- computer simulation showed that a block of ice smaller than a, a, an SUV would have been capable of breaking the bones of the campers while they slept on their backs. Oh, man. The fractures wouldn't necessarily have caused instant death, which would explain how the injured made it so far from the camp. So imagine you're sleeping. It, it's, you know... About fifty degree, fifteen degrees Celsius outside. You're sleeping in a tent. You carved into the side of a hill mm-hmm. to make your camp, and suddenly some some packed ice just slides through your camp and like fucking wrecks your body. Yeah, your tent breaks been your torn. back. Breaks your back. <laughs> yeah, your tent's been torn. What are you gonna do? You're gonna run out, try to get help. I mean, even then, imagine like you, you get smashed by this SUV sized chunk of ice. Your, your tent doesn't even need to be torn. You could be trapped in there and have to slash your way out of the tent. Exactly. Uh, so when they found the abandoned tents, they, they noticed, of course it was torn open. We know that. And it was covered in snow, but it was not buried as it would have been in the case of a typical snow slide. Uh, the shelter had been erected on the mountainside at an incline slightly less than 30 degrees, the number usually cited as the minimum needed to start an avalanche. But according to these simulations, this this pack, what did I call slab avalanche, doesn't need to be at 30 degrees. It can happen as, at, at less than 15 degrees. Ooh, that's scary. Right. So thanks to Disney's Frozen... We have wow. what seems to be a leading theory in the the Avtalov Pass incident. Listen, I, I'm a big fan of unknowable phenomenon that are eventually solved with uh, with physical simulations. You know, the giant impact theory, the creation of the moon. Uh, don't know why that bad boy's up there, but giant impact's probably a pretty good bet. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to accept this. Uh, I'm I'm not really a believer in the supernatural to the extent that uh, Wendigos or snow ghosts exist. Uh, so I always knew there was some uh, disturbing but real reason for the Dietlov Pass incident. And I, I'm willing to accept this and the fact that uh, technology from Disney's Frozen enabled it only uh, heightens my enjoyment of this theory. So I guess I'll just have to. Let it go. No, I I really do. Like, this is, it's cool when, I mean, Frozen was everywhere. So I I imagine that these these researchers who have been researching this incident for so long, their kids are like, 
you know, their kids love Frozen. It's always on. And they're like, fine, I'll finally watch it. I hear the song. It's in my head. I'll finally sit down to watch it. And they notice, wait a second, that snow, that snow is falling <laughs> scarily accurate to real snow. <laughs> that snow is falling perfectly. Now imagine, remove Elsa, place <laughs> nine expert <laughs> level hikers and mountaineers. <laughs> <laughs> the head researcher was like, "All right, okay, assistant, get me Michael Eisner on the phone." He's like, "Is he? Does he work for Disney anymore?" <laughs> it's like, "I don't care. Get him on the phone, damn it! We've got I, a mystery I, to solve." I just have to imagine when someone calls up Disney and they call up like the the tech department because uh, I've been doing a lot of research into uh, the the kind of computer science mathematics and physics departments that exist at uh, Pixar and Disney. And uh, they're huge and very pedigreed, like PhDs work there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that when they got the phone call that someone wanted to solve potentially the Dyatlov Pass incident using technology from Frozen, all those PhDs were like, fucking yeah, of course. (laughs) Uh, They were like, cancel Frozen 3. We have a (laughs) mystery to solve. Yeah, uh, I do appreciate one thing about this story, which is uh, if you were able to, because the Dyatlov Pass incident happened in the 50s. 1959. Yes. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that if you resurrected any of these hikers or mountaineers to the modern day, you couldn't explain to them <laughs> how their their deaths, their mysterious deaths were solved. Like it would take you so long yeah, they to would be explain like, the machinations of what happened. They'd be like, wait, a computer? The thing that's bigger than my house? Uh, it calculates numbers? I don't... <laughs> You mean to tell me that a singing computer <laughs> that, this children's that knows movie. a lot about snow. <laughs> this children's movie solved my death. <laughs> this children's movie. It's good. I don't understand it. Also, <laughs> Olaf appears to be some kind of caricature <laughs> that I do not. I can't put my finger on. I do not appreciate. It's, this Olaf, is he... He is very offensive, yes. (laughs) He is very offensive in your time. You live in enlightened time. I do not... Put me back in the ground. Put me back in the slab avalanche. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they show him the simulation like, Oh, Yuri, Yosef, my friends. It's like, (laughs) did you have to animate my dead colleagues? (laughs) Did you have to enable this the soft body ragdoll physics <laughs> on all of my colleagues? So we get hit by the avalanche and we fly into the sky like an Elder Scroll Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs> they finally made it. They finally made Elder Scrolls Skyrim. You asked me how I know about Elder Scrolls Skyrim. I have my secrets. You have your secrets. Like, oh, I guess we didn't need to do that. Uh, Is there a way to mute the simulation before the bones snap? Because we got really good Foley artists. We got Disney's best in here. (laughs) We got the the Wilhelm scream. My good friend Wilhelm, his scream, <laughs> it has lived on. 
we we were able to remove the Easter egg where one of them farts when they get in the oh, avalanche. No. <laughs> I do not. Why? <laughs> Such cruelty. To me and my eight why friends. You, why would you awake me in this time? <laughs> in this time of a computer that makes fun of me. <laughs> my my death was celebrated by millions, of, but in a way where they did not understand how I died and they wanted to figure it out. They were not cheering for my death. I want to be, be, be very clear. <laughs> Everybody was like, that guy got fucked up by a Wendigo. <laughs> How the Native American spirit ghost get over to Russia? I do not get it. Anyway, I think that Frozen 2 is not as popular as one because the song is harder to sing. The song is so complicated. It does not. We it is, we tried to sing it at karaoke first night. You resurrected night, me. You <laughs> didn't go there first. <laughs> didn't go to the. Got no, one day. Got no. one day on the town in, in SoCal. They were so happy that they could do it. They went to karaoke to celebrate. Yeah, and then they tried to sing Into the Unknown. It's like, there's like a key change. <laughs> this time signature. What does. Is this a time signature of you the expect, future? You expect children to belt this out? Your children must sound amazing when they <laughs> sing. Uh. Poor Yuri. Yeah, poor poor Yusuf and Yuri and Wilhelm. <laughs> and Wilhelm, the most Russian <laughs> of all names. His scream has lived on to this day. Absolutely, without a doubt, all historical Wilhelms have been Russian. <laughs> I just I just don't get why don't why don't they make the hikers out of the same material as the black box? <laughs> See, that would have solved all of these problems. Yeah, then they could just survive and be fine. That's how Sully landed that plane in the in the New York Harbor. Hudson, yeah, the Hudson River. Hudson Hudson River in the New York Harbor. <laughs> he uh, he metal bended it into a black box. Wow, the world's first metal earth bending doesn't exist, but the world's first metal bender. Yeah, Sully. Sully. <laughs> Sully Sullenberger, metal bender supreme. Yeah, the the sixty plus year old pilot. Yeah. Listen, that's the world I want to live in. I don't want to live in the world where those nine people weren't killed by a Wendigo. Yeah. Well, so ends another unsolved mystery, and I can't wait for the something lighthouse incident to be solved by the water physics found in the Incredibles. Yes, uh, the Incredibles too. Let's be let's be clear. No, Actually, unfortunately, it's probably going to be like the water physics from the Good Dinosaur or something. Yeah, yeah. They're like, why are the water physics so accurate in this subpar movie? Uh, I mean, honestly, the only thing I remember from the Good Dinosaur is how good that flood looked. I think there was a flood. I don't remember. I never saw it. Sorry. Uh, but th- I I I want to make sure that I'm being. Grateful. This is actually like a genuinely great gift given my love for this incident and the death of these nine men. I really should have saved this for the finale, huh? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the rest will be better. No, probably oh. not. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well. But it's a good gift. It, it's a good gift, and I thank you for it. Oh, you are welcome, John. Yes, here in, this, in the frightened times when the gifts you're given also might give you gifts 
<laughs> oh no. I gotta say though, I, I do have to say this is like a classic monkey paw scenario and that I was given a gift of resolution of the Dyatlov Pass incident, but it does ring kind of hollow that it was just an avalanche. So it gave me what I wanted, but it took something away from me, which is the mystery. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jordan Peele's movie production company. Uh, yes. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Monkey Paw. (laughs) Yeah, Monkey Paw Productions, right? Yeah, I think so. I think. I hope. I hope. I've said it out loud now. No taking it back now. Can't. Oh, boy. I have to keep pausing to cough. Yeah, Monkey Paw Productions is an American production company founded by Jordan Peele in 2012. Ooh, a lot of good movies ahead of them. Yeah, ahead of them? They're still there? They haven't They haven't regressed beyond 2012? <laughs> They're gonna make Yup. They make Yup. They make Stay Here. Stay <laughs> the, <laughs> the sequels, of course, to Nope and Get Out. Yeah, uh, and them. Uh, them. <laughs> yeah, gonna make Them, Which for I, sure. I think Them is a movie about giant ants, so that'll be a cool remake. Yeah, it's a remake. It's about giant ants with scissors. The ants have scissors? Huh? Oh, in us uh, there are scissors. scissors. It was too too much of a leap. Having scissors? (laughs) Yeah, no, the ants having scissors. Henry? John? I have something to talk about. I have no idea how to, how transition, to transition. How to transition from your from your very gracious gift to what I want to talk about? Just lump, like lump, just lump praise at me. Uh, here's praise. Thank you. Thank you. And you're good. Cool. Uh, you know what's not good, and in fact, quite frightening. Everything. Uh, everything is frightening. Uh, that is a demonstrable fact. That we live every day. Every day. Uh, there is a, a portion of the workforce that is going through a uh, a, a real nightmare. Uh, probably like probably the the most frightening thing one can go through at work, which is a constant surveillance. Oh, like watching your mouse clicks and shit. Yes, this has been a, a reality since the early days of the pandemic for remote workers. For those who, let's be honest, are lucky enough to continue to be able to remote work full or part-time. That is a a diminishing number of people. Uh, But I do have a little bit of good news for you. What's the good news, brother? Uh, So, let me try to... I want to try to figure out how to read this in a way that I don't give away the conclusion. Uh, so an employee working remotely from the Netherlands for a company called Chetu, which appears to be pretty bullshit. I looked at their website. doesn't look very good. They list themselves as like a software development company, but for the life of me, I can't figure out what the fuck they do. They do software, John. It's right there in the name. They seem to be talking a lot about like the metaverse and NFTs. So maybe they're just like a shell game. Maybe they're a totally legitimate company. I don't know. Uh, but Chetu is a South Florida-based uh, U.S. software company. Uh, apparently, to this unnamed employee, on August 23rd, they told him that he'd need to keep his webcam his webcam on all day during training Ooh. to make sure that he was actually attending training. 
I feel like because he's in the Netherlands, there's going to be some type of labor law that he's actually protected by. Uh, so in response, the employee told Chetu that he didn't feel comfortable being monitored for nine hours a day by camera uh, and said it was an invasion of his privacy and made him feel very uncomfortable. And he refused to turn his camera on. Uh, the employee who wasn't named in the suit said the company could already monitor his activities on his laptop and they w- that he was also willing to share his screen, which, to be honest, shouldn't have even done that. Right. Uh, it's already too beyond the pale, really. Uh, let's see. Another employee at Chetu said the requirement for employees to keep their webcams on was no different from how an employee would be seen by everyone all day in a physical office, according to court papers. I'm certain that that employee at Chetu is uh, one of the people who orchestrates this uh, panopticon of nightmares. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Panopticon's a great word for that. Uh, we are actually all slowly office workers and remote workers moving into a, a panopticon the longer we stay in the United States. Uh, but three days later, on August 26th, the employee was fired for refusal to work and insubordination, the court documents say. Uh, however, he lived in the Netherlands, so he right. took Chetu to court, saying he wasn't given an urgent reason to justify the immediate dismissal given, and that the company's demand that he keep his webcam on was a violation of his personal privacy. Ooh, this is interesting. Uh, in its ruling, the Dutch court sided with the employee, saying the firing was not legally valid. So what did he get? Uh, let's see. Read through the court documents. The employer's not made clear enough, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, essentially, he got $75,000. Uh, okay, years of salary, basically. Yeah, years salary, uh, and then the company is all over the news. Uh, by the way, I'm quoting from an article in Business Insider, which is not my uh, preferred uh, periodical of choice, but it's the shortest and most succinct version of this article. Uh, I love when U.S. companies fuck with uh, international employees that live in countries that actually have workers' rights. <laughs> Yes, uh, every article that I've seen talking about this does have a little denouement at the end saying, had this case been tried in the United States, where you have a right to work and a, um, what's the thing Texas and like 50% of states have? At will employment. At will employment, uh, that you can be fired for any reason because fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because fuck you for being born here. It, it, it's billed as a good thing. It's like, oh, no, there's no contracts. I mean, you can quit at any time as well. There's no obligation to the company. It's like, Listen, well, there, there's no there's obligation. There's no contracts unless we have a signing bonus with a clawback. And also your health insurance is dependent on yeah. is contingent on your employment with us. And we can also lock you into equity deals where we can claw back equity from you. But there's no contracts. We no, I, hold no power over each other. And it's getting worse. Like if you look into like, oh, yeah, some some companies are getting involved in the housing crisis because housing is so expensive. They're building employee homes where employees can live. So it's like, <laughs> oh, so it's at will. There's no contracts. But if you quit, you lose your house. I mean, this all started with privatized health insurance, but they're essentially trying to get every one of our freedoms under the tent of employment. Uh, and and I, 
I don't think it's impossible to see a future where your ability to vote is dependent on you being the employee of something. Because remember, the Supreme Court said that you being a, a citizen does not necessarily mean you have the right to vote. So that can change at any time. Uh, anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but yes, this the, the good news, this person did get some recompense, uh, but this is something that is felt by a lot of employees, either in fact or really in perception and in practice. People feel like they're being monitored even though they're not, or they feel like they're being monitored even though they are. Uh, it's true for anyone who is working remotely, and I- increasingly it's also true for people who work in offices. Uh, the the knowledge worker space in America is a very scary place right now. Absolutely. I mean, when a bunch of companies went to remote during the pandemic and they, you know, say, Oh yeah, we have mouse trackers and we can look at your screen whenever we want. We can watch you through your webcam. We can turn your webcam Mm -hmm. on remotely, like all these things. It's like, yeah, but now I'm in my home Yes. And I feel like I have a right to privacy. Because, you know, back then we had a right to privacy that we no longer have. Yes. Uh, at some point in the past, we had this right to privacy. Yeah. And then, you know, they repealed Roe versus Wade. And now there is no <laughs> there is no constitutional right to privacy anymore. Yes. Uh, very little right to almost any personal freedom, to be honest with you. Yeah, isn't that great? Isn't it great to live in the, uh, the country of personal freedoms where we're actively losing freedoms every day? It's great to live in the country of liberty where we are very much not at liberty to do almost anything. Uh, but at least we get paid a lot and everything's a lot more expensive. Yeah, uh, at least it's... we get paid a lot and inflation is being driven by corporate greed. <laughs> at least we get paid a lot and we pay $1,200 a month for health insurance that we have to buy. Man, it's great. At least we get paid a lot, and yet I'm paying property taxes on the house that I own. I mean, I the bank owns, and I'm paying it off, but the property tax gets higher every year, even though... Did you know Texans pay more tax taxes than, like, California does? I was actually reading this uh, kind of phenomenal breakdown showing that living in California might actually be cheaper than living in Texas. It's insane. It's insanity. It, uh, it did this really interesting thing where a, a lot of the reason why people uh, will weight Texas heavier for its affordability is your like gas prices are lower. Uh, and then this study actually took into account like, oh, access to public transit will appropriately like weight gas prices. And yes, in California, you'll pay more for gas, but travel is actually quite a bit cheaper. Right. It's just, yeah. I mean, there are, look, this, this state's bad. And part of the reason it's bad is because there's no worker rights, which I believe is what this story was sort of about. (laughs) Yes. There, there are no worker rights, uh, unless you live in the Netherlands quick aside, I think Portugal is, uh, piloting a one year long digital nomad program. Uh, where you get a visa to live in Portugal and work from anywhere for up to a year. Uh, so, you know, maybe look into that if you're not a huge fan of what's going on here right now. All right. I could be a digital nomad out of Portugal. I mean, at least for a year. For one year. that That's enough to unlearn all the bad habits I've picked up at this terrible place I work. 
I mean, you'd you'd still work at that place, no, or you'd find I'd a quit. new job. Work in Portugal. Well, from from afar, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's fascinating to me. Uh, a number of members of my family, because I come from like a military family. Ha ha hua. Wait, what's what's Marines? I think that's hoorah. 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 Uh, army is hua, right? I don't know. I, I I have not been around that culture like at all. My well, entire life. It's army and air force. Boo. Anyway, I think air force is <laughs> air force is actually tie fighter noise. <laughs> uh, if I wouldn't cough, if I did that, I I do my tie fighter noise, but uh, it is very common for people during tours in the army, but especially the air force to be stationed in Germany and pretty uniformly. Every member of my family that was stationed in Germany went on to live there full time. Uh, because if you get perspective and you see how fucking nice it is anywhere else, you kind of have no choice but to live there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's the craziest thing about Americans is. We're so insular over here with our 50 states that are like 50 individual countries, but with a with a, a monolithic culture that is ubiquitous to all of them, that we forget that there are other places where the world can be better, where things like universal health care and workers' rights and things like that exist and can protect you. It, it even It doesn't even go that far, my man. Some people will go to a city that just has like mixed use developments and walkability and that's enough to turn them over to the dark side to move to somewhere else like in america we're so divorced from the idea that we could have a life where we could walk to the store we go to for all of our groceries we could walk to the bar we go to we could walk to the bookstore or take affordable public transit to these places we could live in like a a slow way that is efficient we wouldn't need to like constantly jet around in cars that are killing us we wouldn't need to travel 60 miles per hour every day to do fucking nothing (laughs) It's a very interesting phenomenon. It's like they say, like, oh, the devil's greatest trick is that he convinced the world he didn't exist. I think America's greatest trick is preaching this idea of the American dream and bettering your life, but actively, like, indoctrinating its people against thinking their lives could be any better. Yes. I... I tend to fall not somewhere in the middle. I'm I'm not a centrist. I think that there are... Uh, phenomenally great things about the United States of America in its history. Name one. Uh, we used to have very robust workers' rights for a short period of time. Yeah, we used good. to have. We used to have not in its current state, but I'm saying in the past, we actually have a a pretty great run of of industriousness and innovation and affordability and freedom and liberty. Uh, which were built on the backs of indigenous people. Uh, But we have like a track record of that that could lead people to believe, oh, the thing we have now is an extension of that. No, the thing we have now is uh, is a complete perversion of that. Uh, And we were looking for the Popeye's chicken sandwich. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The Popeye's chicken sandwich is in fact the uh, single symbol of American (laughs) Ur supremacy. 
Exactly. <laughs> Put that on the flag. Oh, it will be. <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> we uh, Listen, project yourself into an America 25 years from now. Your house is owned by your work. Uh, your life is a prison. The American flag is a hollow foil <laughs> Popeye's chicken sandwich. Well, I think the art just created itself this week. <laughs> I mean, totally fair. Uh, I, I didn't mean to get into like a weird, weird capitalism hole. My my brain's been in a oh my oh, brain's buddy. been a very strange place because of some recent news about a, a couple things about artists I really like. So before uh, you get into that, buddy, I just have to the listeners know because th- they were here for it, and I apologize in earnest to them. But yeah, you want to talk about weird capitalism holes? Uh, last week's episode, I just ranted for 40 minutes about how capitalism is the single source black hole reason for everything getting a little bit worse all of the time. So you are on par. I mean, listen, you see what's happening with people of our generational cohort, people in their, uh, let's be honest, mid (laughs) to late thirties. Uh, I'm seeing it as early as mid twenties, to be honest, people are ubiquitously burnt out. But I think what's happening is people who have accumulated some amount of capital who are lucky enough to accumulate some amount of capital. I'm lucky enough to consider myself among those people. They're starting to move like away from city and suburban centers. They're moving to like, you know, the country for the most part. A lot of people in Austin are moving to Lockhart and people are moving away and people are, uh, this millennial kind of hyper urban cohort is starting to move out of cities. And I don't think that's because we're like craving deeply some parochialism. I don't think we're looking for some kind of on Walden pond shit. I think that we're trying to get away from American society. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is it's marrying like a little, a a life change that would happen in better circumstances. Like, yeah, you move to the city when you're young, then you meet someone and now you want to start a family. You move to the suburbs or even farther to raise your kid or whatever, but that's not happening because who can afford a kid in this economy? Jesus Christ. So instead it's like, yes, flee to the country, flee away from American society because what other choice do we have? It's actually becoming a, we're inverting that trend because that was true for boomers and Gen Xers is that you get a house in the city when you're young and then you get a house in the suburbs when you want to have kids. But now we're getting to a point where we get a house in the suburbs when we want to be young because that's all we can afford. And then actually over time, as people are starting to have kids, they're returning to city centers because they have things like good schools, public transit. And by good schools, I mean accessible schools. Uh, They have like accessible schools. They have public transit. They have culture. So people are like inverting that paradigm. And it's almost as if maybe we all should have lived in a place that had all of those things to begin with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Walkable cities would be great in America. I, uh, listen, I, I consider frequently moving to a number of the suburbs of Austin and I love Austin and its suburbs, but like, they're just not 
super walkable. There's no mixed use developments. It's just a hard sell. But if I want to live somewhere with those things in Austin, it's like $1.5 million. So like, what the fuck am I going to do? $1.5 million for an under 1,000 square foot condo where you have to get a Murphy bed because you can't fit a normal bed. Listen, I'm talking to a realtor in a few weeks. I don't know what they're going to tell me. I'm going to give them a list of impossible dreams. <laughs> nah, they're going to work with you. It's going to be great. But um, hope but you yeah. visit me in Martindale. That won't happen. Fair. I don't go anywhere 10 minutes outside of Austin. Oh, that's fine. It's two hours away. Jesus. Okay. It was nice being friends. I'm going to turn Martindale blue. Good it's, By yourself? I mean, it's not going to be hard. There's only one other person. <laughs> who lives there, and I just have to beat him to the polls. You're going to double the amount of blueness just by moving there. Martindale for Beto, baby. Hell yeah. Well, you've got, there's this, you're moving really quick then because <laughs> that, that election is like in a month. Oh, no, no. I mean, in like four, four oh, to no. six years or whatever. In the rerun. Okay. Yeah. Oh. So, yes, artist, bad news. I, we can get into it a little bit. Yeah, we can talk about some some bad art news that I'm, to be honest with you, not exceptionally familiar with outside of like the top contour of what happened. I mean, I can give you a brief surface level synopsis. Please. All right. This is going to be very, very deep diving into something very specific to John and I. Uh, but there's a video game out there and called... And thousands of others. No, it's singular to us. One tons of Game of the Year awards. Nobody else has ever heard of it. There's a video game out there by the little name of Disco Elysium. Mm-hmm. It has sold millions of copies, won numerous awards, and has been celebrated as one of the most original video games in the point-and-click genre, or just in video games, period, in a very long time. Maybe genuinely one of the best video games ever made. Uh, But walking back, it didn't happen by chance. Disco Elysium is the culmination of an artist movement in Estonia, by the name, the artist movement is called ZA slash UM Zaum. And what that artist movement was, it was a, a, a collection of artists creating a counterculture to the very traditionalist values of Estonia and the, with a central theme of sort of like questioning what we are, who we are, and why we are by sort of taking those traditionalist traditionalist values, questioning them, and then propping up other alternatives that we could be. And you saw this in a lot of novels, a lot of art, music, across all of the the mediums. This was the Zaum movement. Yes, and eventually Zaum turned into a UK-based video game studio called Zaum Studio or Studio Zaum. Yes, uh, uh, but I mean before that. Let's d- 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 skip in one step. Uh, yes, out of the, Out of the movement of Zaum, the movement eventually became a singular collective with the same name, the Zaum Collective, and from them, they they somehow also that with of the same name became Studio Zaum, a video game company. Yes, yeah, so a video game company headquartered in the UK. 
and they uh, kind of coalesced this studio around the uh, the thesis and the written work of one Robert Kurvitz. Kurwitz, I don't know how to pronounce Estonian names. Uh, but uh, Robert Kurvitz, who had, had written a novel set in a very unique universe, uh, particularly surrounding the themes of like uh, modern political theory and self-loathing, that they decided to turn into like a Dungeons and Dragons-esque yes. point-and-click adventure game, which uh, somehow, through, I swear to God, the power of Twitter, <laughs> turned into like... A cultural phenomenon. I mean, yeah, kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, And that all culminated in the video game Disco Elysium that went on to win all those awards and accolades and and got just huge, huge numbers, as the kids are saying now. Um, And that's where the story could have ended. Yes, it, it could have blissfully ended. And just to just to be clear, when I say that through the power of Twitter, Twitter makes nothing good except uh, nothing, actually. I was going to say Shrimp Dad, but I think Shrimp Dad's a psyop. Uh, Bean Dad's a psyop, too. I anyway, mean, Twitter, Twitter allows, makes nothing good. It allows us to, to routinely and daily dunk on Elon Musk, and that is the only positive value we get out of it. But I think that, uh, crucially to be like an important, not to be an important piece of art, but to be like a lightning in a bottle, popular piece of art, what you have to do is you have to like cross at least two curves. And I think the Disco Elysium landed a very unique time in that it was a point and click text-based largely adventure game hot on twitter just generally speaking that's a relatively hot thing in game dev circles that's about modern political theory which resonated with the emerging american and european far left movement and self-loathing which resonates with fucking everybody yes and it was just bizarre in its presentation and Austin, like its style was unique just, and there's, it's really, it's been so interesting. There have been no imitators. No one has even really tried. Disco Elysium, I think is truly one of those pieces of art where even if you wanted to imitate it, you would take one look at it and be like, I, I can't, how the fuck are you expecting me to create an imitator to this extremely uh, intransigent, strange, loathing, lilting game with this extremely bizarre uh, watercolor <laughs> <laughs> aesthetic. Watercolor aesthetic that's based on <laughs> thoughts. Yes. Like, I'm, how could you even begin? Over a thousand hours of recorded voice lines over a million lines of just pure text with a dialogue tree so complicated and and interwoven and and just interconnected with itself that to try to examine it your brain simply explodes i'm replaying disco elysium again in light of recent news that we'll get into and i'm going through dialogue trees and i can't imagine what those twine graphs looked like Oh, man, yeah. If they wrote this in Twine, I'm pretty sure Twine, like the servers, have like 90% 
is Disco Elysium, and 10% is every other story written on Twine. <laughs> I mean, there are entire conversations that are totally different because I decided to internalize the hobo cop thought. Yeah. Like it's, it's so good. You, you don't even realize it until you're, you, you're committed to one of the capo types or your political agenda of choice. But I, I went with boring type, the boring capo type plain regular cop on this playthrough and just the amount like, I swear voice lines are just not voice lines, but dialogue choices have been changed to go out of my way to say that I am boring. It, it's <laughs> fascinating because I, I think uh, the first time I played Disco Elysium, I, I tend to play a goody two shows in video games when I'm feeling things out. And I tended to say sorry for things a lot. And the thought was, oh, you should be sorry, cop. And I was like, that I, that's actually still a thought I internalize as a person where I tried to say <laughs> sorry for things less because it, it made me feel so meek. Apparently yeah. sorry cop unlocks really incredibly funny dialogue choices. It's, it's a phenomenal game. And the, the takeaway from what John's explanation was a game that is not easily iterated upon or monetized. Like people bought it in droves. It was wildly successful in in spite of the fact that it is uniquely unmarketable, how do you market this outside I, I, of the, the the Twitter circles that are really into it? I, I do want to say because we're not going to have another opportunity to say this. I was actually researching a little bit about D- Disco Elysium's marketing, and apparently the uh, the poster, I guess, or promotional materials for Disco Elysium released. Uh, the tagline for Disco Elysium is "What kind of cop are you?" And I am <laughs> loath. I am loath to admit that that joins the pantheon of the Last Jedi and oh. being in the way for incredible multi-meaning collections of words in the English language. Incredible. At, there are at least four different ways you could read the phrase "What kind of cop are you?" It's so good. <laughs> That is fascinating. So that, that's how you market it with groundbreaking head exploding things that could mean four different things. I read it. I was like, ah, oh, that's lame. It's just like advertising choice. I'm like, no, wait, it's, it's also commenting on police as protectors of capital. It's also commenting on you being a bad cop. It's so good. It's perfect. Uh, anyway, please continue. I just, I, I wanted to say that. I gotcha. Uh, so sometime last year, in the wake of the success of Disco Elysium, you know, the, the devs went on to give a, a couple of interviews talking about iteration, trying to like weird interviews were like, well, yeah, what would combat look like in this world? We have no idea, uh, but maybe we can explore such ideas in a potential sequel. And that got the internet a buzz for a little bit. And then months later, it was announced that a Disco Elysium pilot was being developed for Amazon Prime. And now, if you understand anything ideologically about what we've just said, that it's made with a deft hand pointed towards modern political theory, uh, you'd maybe think that's somewhat incongruous. Right. And then nothing. Radio silence for basically a year until randomly... In the middle of October, the studio Zaum, who is the video game creator, 
releases a seemingly random statement that, that just states, we are no longer working with the Zalm Collective. The Zalm Collective has dissolved. Uh, yes, which is um, typically not great news from a collective. Yeah, typically collectives don't like dissolving. But basically what the, the Zalm Collective followed up to this statement saying, well, the, the name Zalm no longer stands for anything. And therefore the collective has no reason to be together anymore. And details mm -hmm. kind of leaked out that the three major players of the video game Disco Elysium, including like the main writers and a couple of other key players hadn't been involved in the studio, the studio Zalm for over a year dating back to that Amazon Prime announcement. And including the uh, the artist behind the overall aesthetic of Disco Elysium was no longer involved as well. And uh, there were also some comments, I think, by Martin Luiga, who was one of the editors for the game, came out as well. Right. It is The collective came out of the woodwork to say, yeah, we're not working with them because they no longer understand what we were about. To which the studio responded, hey, look, we're still making our next project. It's going to be big. Just wait for it. Disabled yeah. comments. <laughs> Amazing. Very, it's it's a classic sign. It's a strong rhetorical position to make a statement with disabled comments. Yeah. It shows that you're making that statement with your whole chest when you disable comments. I mean, obviously they were expecting backlash and I mean, just those same said circles on Twitter and all the journalists who really dug Disco Elysium for the greatness that it was or is because uh, you can't change it. it. Hopefully it'll always remain untouched. Um, just dug into the studio like this is just a huge bummer all over that this is happening uh, with a weird hint of can't wait to see the inevitable Disco Elysium and Fortnite crossover. I mean, listen, we just, we, we love to see it. We want to see more Fortnite. I, as someone who has been involved to varying degrees with artistic organizations in the past, uh, I can pretty clearly see what happens. So the, the comments by Martin Luiga, an editor on Disco Elysium's, uh, story seem to indicate that, uh, he could not uh, kind of live in silence anymore. And he wasn't bound to crucially the level of non-disclosure agreements that, uh, the likes of Robert Kurvitz were subject to apparently during their ousting from the studio. Uh, it is not, <clears throat> it is not impossible to imagine that, uh, studio Zalm uh, was perhaps pursuing these uh, very lucrative capitalist ventures like selling the rights to a pilot to Amazon Prime or whatever. And uh, given what we've talked about so far regarding the content of the video game, you would imagine that that's maybe incongruous with the beliefs of the founders of the collective. Right. Absolutely, for sure. So I, as someone who has been a member of these things, I have seen it happen for very... I mean, 
Christ, I've seen it happen over a hundred dollars. Uh, one of these, <laughs> one of these groups can tear itself apart over the potential for profit. It really can. And that's, that's what sucks that the, the thing that it railed against so eloquently or leaned into so wholeheartedly because <laughs> you can be an ultra liberal, like capitalist, uh, I don't even know what the noun should be. I, I still, I still have not had the, I haven't had the intestinal fortitude to play the neoliberal hustler cop yet. And I, I want, I want to. Right. Like, so, I mean, in a game that it lets you exploit capital for profit while solving a murder question mark, <laughs> uh, it, it, to critique it, like it, I guess, in some ways, to show that side of life, but also, I mean, nobody's coming out good if if player character is is endorsing them. Um, you'll see why if you ever play it. But it's it's just it's heartbreaking to see this collective that was strewn about, not strewn about, that gathered together in the vein of counterculture to critique their their traditionalist country just torn apart by capitalist ideals and investor pressure, all of which to boil down to Disco Elysium 2 is going to suck, guys. If it even comes out. Like, I, I I, really don't think whatever is left of this studio would necessarily have the acumen to really uh, leverage that for what it's worth. I really don't. And I hope to God they can't. Like, I, I hope it's going to be... I hope here's the problem generally is I, is I think that for the most part, your greediest people are also your most incompetent because they don't have the courage of their convictions. Now there are some real freaks at the highest levels of government and power in private industries who have managed to, uh, who, who have managed to operationalize being greedy assholes. But I think that's rare. I think most greedy people are actually incompetent. Uh, so I really hope that they are not able to leverage this in any way. The IP dies, and then we can follow these creators onto the next thing they do. Right. I hope so too, for the most part. Um, but I am highly looking forward to Disco Elysium Mobile, the match three game. <laughs> oh no, it's going to be Battle Royale. They'll be three <laughs> three years out of step with popular culture. Yeah, Disco Elysium, the Battle Royale. You're all cops uh, trying you're, to survive. You're all cops, and you're killing artists <laughs> you're gunning down artists i'm looking forward to the new disco elysium match type for overwatch 2 where if you have a prepaid phone plan it makes you play as a shiftless artist and your only weapon is to beg for money and the the other the the opposing force is uh cops with ar-15s oh <sighs> Disco I'm looking Ele- forward to the Disco Elysium sequel where you craft monster energy drink out of the time rain. <laughs> Disco Elysium 2 starts of a slow crawl that says, somehow the pale disappeared. <laughs> and then Lorem Ipsum text. <laughs> Lorem Ipsum text, yeah. Oh, man. Yep. I just, I'm, I'm bummed out. I really dig it. I don't think there ever needs to be a sequel, but I would be interested 
and what that particular set of people could like come together to create like their next project. But it will never get it now, or maybe we'll get it in a different way. I'm not sure. Maybe one day that novel will be translated into English. Yeah. I was going to say that really the, um, most boring old person take I have on this is I truly wish that uh, Robert Kurvitz's novel is translated into English by the translator and editor of the English version of Disco Elysium and also that he continues to write because uh, I just want to live in that world and luxuriate in that God, the translator of that game is so good. I just want to learn more about the pale. I just... There is no way everyone listening to this podcast knows this of me to be true. I love like the, the tingly joy of the written word. Like I love word play and I love new arrangements of English words. And like, you gotta play disco Elysium. If you identify with that even a little bit because it's English translation is so perfectly tuned to like tingle the centers of your brain that excite at new possibilities and new arrangements of ideas. It's just so perfect. Play Disco Elysium. (laughs) Play Disco Elysium. It opens with a haunting (laughs) conversation with a hangover. Yeah, in, in yeah. the most in the most perfect crystallization of how a hangover actually feels, it's it's just so good. It listen in Disco Elysium. If you don't play your cards right, you'll die of a heart attack trying to fight a ceiling fan. <laughs> yeah, if you don't spec properly, that ceiling fan will kill you. There's really there's really great memes. It's like. Oh, I hope I have enough healing items. There's a large paragraph coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, um, man, when you're deep into one of those dialogue trees and you're trying like a check that's like a 50%, oof, just, it's, it's just a great game. It's a good game. I'm playing it through for, this has got to be the third or fourth time and I'm still finding new, new things. Listen, it's a great game. You always got to boil the feet out of the boots. Oh, so this playthrough that I'm doing now, I'm not touching the body at all. Really? I'm going going for it. The solved a murder without expecting the body. I, um, I'm actually trying to play as a, uh, hobo cop intellectual communist, which is interesting. That's a good combination. It's very fun. <laughs> uh, I, I've, ne- I've never actually played intellectual in this game, and it completely changes the game. Oh, man. Just have an encyclopedia on your side. You actually get so many like explanations about the world. I now I, – t- people playing the game for the first time, it's not the most exciting. But if you pick encyclopedia as your, your, your key skill, you just – you get – explanations about what the fuck is going on yeah this is the first time i've I've played with a high uh encyclopedia my next playthrough i need to figure out whether i want to be like uh max out shivers weirdo cop uh or if i want to or even inland empire or if i want to play just a 
just a brute dickhead authoritarian cop, which I've never had the intestinal fortitude to do. Yeah, I I'm looking at the achievements I have left and like down the line, there is a playthrough I have to do. That is the traditionalist racist cop. Yeah. (laughs) There's achievements for it. I'm justified, I guess. But also that's the playthrough that like, there's no way you can do that and be friends with Kim Kitsuragi, which I can't not be friends with Kim I mean, Kitsuragi. Kim Kitsuragi is the best character in the game. There's a, with the hobo cop trait, there's a relatively early secret where you can get a racist mug. Yep. And, and you, you unlock racist characteristics by looking at the mug and saying, no, this is right. What the mug <laughs> says like this, this horrible racist mug yeah. informs your worldview for the rest of the game. It, it's, it's it's a yeah it's a, a really good thought a really good thought experiment of like what if a person it was just a blank slate and you put stuff in front of them and they just started forming their personality based on the stuff they saw yeah it's great because typically when you play an amnesiac in a game you're someone with strong convictions but low knowledge whereas in disco elysium you're an, an amnesiac functionally, but you have low knowledge, but you're extremely susceptible to all stimuli <laughs> and you can choose to go all in on anything and make it your thing. Uh, it's, it's perfect. It's perfect writing. It's a great game. Everyone should play it and we should all pour one out for the lost of the Zalm artist collective. And let's hope these creators go on to make additional things that delight us in similar ways. Uh, don't don't give your money to Studio Zom anymore unless it's to buy the first Disco Elysium and to send them a strongly worded letter. And watch out because on Cartoon Network, Disco Elysium Babies is coming to you this fall. Disco, I, I know you said Disco Elysium Babies, but for a second I thought you said Disco Elysium Beyblades. Oh, the first ever crossover between a uk based studio and anime (laughs) yeah anime from the early 2000s coming at you disco elysium beyblades disco elysium in Fortnite, disco elysium branded nicotine sachets the fuck is a sachet it's like a small thing it's like a you like put it in your lip oh it's like chew Listen, I know I talked about this like three times on the podcast, but it's crazy that nicotine's getting a glow up right now. So I feel yeah. like it's a really it's a really good time. That's the frighteningest <laughs> thing of all. We've talked about a lot of frightening stuff on Ooh, I'm losing my voice again. We've talked about a lot of frightening stuff on this podcast. The frozen. <laughs> <laughs> we frozen. frozen, which is very frightening. There's a golem. There's the a Popeye's golem chicken sandwich. The Popeyes, These are the, the the hollow foil Popeye's chicken sandwich flag future. These are the things. These are the takeaways, folks. These are the things to fear. Not the other stuff surrounding these things. <laughs> not not the horrible panopticon. Not the encroaching specter of capitalism. Not your inability to be free in America. No, the the future of the hollow foil chicken sandwich flag and frozen well i think on that very frightening note i think it's time to bid our our listeners good good hopefully morning 
Yes, good this... morning. I you've listened to it all through the night as we have required. Yes, now you get your uncle's inheritance. <laughs> you've stayed in the mansion and now as the sun rises, the temperature rises, the sun rays burning off the damp morning dew covering the mansion, uh coming through the slats of the windows, illuminating the cobwebs and burning the spiders. Uh, <laughs> spiders cannot stand sunlight for you're their gonna, vampires. You're going to need to buy some curtains for this. This mansion faces the sun every morning. <laughs> every window is on the east side. There's no good place <laughs> to put a plant. <laughs> <laughs> There's no south-facing windows, and you're in the northern hemisphere. <laughs> you have to buy a grow light. This is truly frightening. <laughs> it's it's truly frightening, but what is even more frightening, <laughs> in fact, is social media. Ah. Uh, so if you would like to engage with us on the most frightening of social media platforms, that is to say Twitter, I'm actually thinking of going back on Twitter. <laughs> we didn't talk. <laughs> I think you just got your answer. You just got your answer. You shouldn't do it. Yeah, my, my body is rebelling. The, the universe is telling, giving you a huge sign not to do it. Okay, I'll just be on Be Real. But if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, you can do so at ZCPCWHJ on Twitter.com, which stands for Henry. That stands for Zoom. Come, please, come with huge jobs. <laughs> <laughs> They're back. <laughs> That's right. We need Zaum to post huge jobs because we'll work there. We'll turn it around. We can fix him. If you want to send us a long email about how you think it's wrong that Disco Elysium got rid of their niche podcast voiceover actors, that's uh, a it's a real sticking point for me. Listen, I get it. A lot of them went on to be like post ironic or canceled or bought by Peter Thiel. But I want to go back to 2019 when I thought all these people were my friends and I had deep parasocial relationships with them. You can send that email to email at zerocredits.net. Still a website, still an email address. If you email us, it will go to an inbox. Uh, we are on every most podcast scraping service, including the podcast service you're listening to us on right now but to name a few in case your friends don't use the one you use we are on good pods pod chaser spotify and apple music unfortunately if you listen to us on apple music you gotta buy the big apple watch it's as big as a waffle but if you do that, what please. What the fuck is happening? It's as big as a wall. It's big, Henry. It's called Apple Podcast, by the way. Everyone's mad that the watch is big. Uh, uh, if you listen to us on the big watch, please leave us a big five-star review. Because that is a great way 
for anyone <laughs> to learn about this podcast. Do that on any of the any of the platforms that support reviews. They'll boost us in the algorithm. Uh, but an even better way for people to learn about this podcast is for you to turn on all the lights in your house. Put a big bowl of candy outside. What is it? October 14th or some shit? I don't give a shit. Put a big bowl of candy outside. And then when people come up to your door to take some candy, be like, ooh, someone's in the mood. <laughs> That's what people say <laughs> when you leave candy out. And then you'll have cut a hole in your door. And then when they grab the candy, you reach your hand through and you grab their hand and your hand is hot. <laughs> Your hand is very hot. And then when you retract your hand, your hot hand will have left a burn on their hand like a pentagram or a scorpion from the beginning of Red Dead Revolver. You'll burn onto them a brand that says, listen to Zero Credits, the podcast, because tell your friends, tell strangers in the night, because word of the mouth is the only way we can survive. And from everyone here at this random viewer's uncle's mansion studios, we want to wish you a happy haunted week. Oh, uh, do you want to... I mean, I got a couple things we could pass the time in the uncle's mansion with. Do you want to bust out the Ouija board or do you want to play Guess Who? Let's play Guess Who with the Ouija board. <laughs> Is your person an H? Goodbye! Goodbye! H for in hell. <laughs> oh, that, I mean, that's the that's the that's the end of it. That's the end of the episode.